welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Uh, hello, everyone. This is Steve King, the uh, Managing Director at Cyber Theory, reporting to you today on this podcast with Victoria Beckman, who is the lead for Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit in the Americas. In her prior life, Victoria worked for several law firms in data privacy and security. She's written extensively on data privacy and the law and is the recipient of numerous awards, has been named as one of the top 50 security influencers of 2022. It sounds like a big deal to me. So welcome, Victoria. I'm glad you could join us today. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks for the invitation to be here. Sure. So let's jump in here. Uh, Brad Smith, Microsoft's president and essentially your boss, has introduced this notion of um, assessing the impact of the war on the on the development and the use of technology and made some salient points along that line. I'm curious about your perspective on the five elements he talks about. And I'm I wanted to talk today about Russia and Ukraine and and uh, the whole future of cybercrime landscape, because it's very salient right now. I think uh, we're, we're, we are in a war. We're in a war where we've weaponized cybersecurity tools and technologies. And uh, so I think it's, it's important for people to understand at what, you know, the stage at which we find ourselves. And again, you know, who better than, um, than yourself? And uh, and then, you know, Microsoft, of course, who is in the uh, thick of things here. So first, I guess, defense against the military invasion now requires for most countries the ability to disperse and distribute digital operations and data assets physically across borders and into other countries. Why is that necessary and what are the downstream implications of that? Well, I think it's necessary because as we have seen with Ukraine, the war now has gone beyond just the physical, regular, old school war as we know it, to be uh, this hybrid war that involves uh, cyber attacks, attacks to critical infrastructure, uh, the ability to get information, uh, espionage and information about the systems of the other of, of the other country, and in this case, Ukraine, uh, Russia got got information way before the actual the first invasion occurred in February of this year, and so it's obviously a, a need to prepare as you will prepare any military operation or any defense on the ground. And the implications downstream is that you cannot do that in a vacuum. If you are preparing the the critical infrastructure of a country, if you're preparing your systems, you have a national cybersecurity strategy, all of that, of course, is going to have an effect downstream in businesses, in how information, even in legislation, how information is protected, is shared, um, to, to be able to stand these attacks, to be able to be prepared, to be able to not... I mean, one cyber attack to, for example, a utility company or a, or a power plant, as we have seen, could be as destructive 
and cause as much economic and human damage as uh, an attack on Iran. Yeah, right. And so, you know, what surprises me, uh, based on what I've read anyway, is that I, I don't see any evidence, and maybe I missed it, of Russia or Putin going after critical infrastructure in a way that would, you know, shut down Ukrainian defenses. Uh, did I miss that or? No, yeah. I mean, in fact, we saw the cyber attacks kind of advance hand in hand with the, the military attacks. So even before, let's say January of this year, there were already operations for Russia to get information about the security and, and national security information of Ukraine to do these attacks. And the majority of the attacks, not only in this case, but the majority of nation state attacks that we have seen in the last few years are concentrated in critical infrastructure and governmental entities, NGOs, this kind of, this kind of industries. So yes, there was, you know, with, with the military strikes, for example, in the in Ukraine largest nuclear power station in March, there were all kinds of attacks in terms of propaganda, in terms of um, seeing some attacks to the networks, to the actual networks of, of their computers. Yeah, I see. So I'm curious, you know, you're responsible for the Digital Crimes Unit for the Americas. How does Microsoft, or whomsoever it is, decide which components of the cyber attacks, you know, belongs in that bucket versus, versus other buckets like, you know, misinformation or disinformation or malinformation or what have you, for example? I know that it's been reported widely that Russia has kind of divided their attacks into kind of one into thirds. And I know a third of that is heading is directly into our country with all of that misinformation campaign. So who decides what ends up in your department? Well, we are, my team is one out of seven different teams, uh, Microsoft, that are dealing with cybersecurity, at least internal cybersecurity and this kind of attacks. So for example, we have a separate, uh, my unit is called Digital Crimes Unit, DCU, and we have some pillars, you may say, of the kinds of cyber crimes that we concentrate on. So we deal a lot with ransomware, um, malware, business email compromise. We have a separate division for this information. And in fact, we just acquire a separate company to, to handle that. And then there is a separate team called the Digital Safety Unit, DSU, that deals specifically with nation state attacks. So based on, on that, different teams monitor different systems and come up with different information. At the end of the day, if we are seeing certain kind of patterns or behavior in our our little bucket that we are researching, we work together with other internal teams to, to see all of this and do operations globally or decide that we're going to concentrate all our resources in this specific attack, this specific country or topic. Mm -hmm. And how big is your team? My team for the Americas is 12. We're one region. There is a 
a bigger team that covers uh, EMEA, Europe and the Middle East. And I can't tell you how many, somewhere around maybe 20 something. There is an Asia Pacific region. And then there is the central team that is based in Seattle. So all in all, it's probably around 50 of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, Brad Smith's paying a lot of attention to that, this problem. I, You know, how much of that is concerned about your own vulnerabilities and, you know, the publicity around Microsoft vulnerabilities being, t- you know, advantaged by bad guys uh, or and how much of it is, you know, trying to do a better job of, of securing your your software? I think it's both. I think in our team and most of the teams, I mean, our priority is to protect our systems so that we generate trust in our clients to use our our products and services. So we're here trying to make robust products. The information that we get from monitoring our cloud and our systems is used in real time to improve our own products. However, We also are aware of the importance of working together, the importance of partnerships. We have multiple partnerships with different governmental entities and and private and public companies. In fact, we have agreements with some of our competitors to combat disinformation, online child exploitation, these kinds of things. So it's, it's a combination of both. We try to provide information about threats and vulnerabilities ahead of time to governments. We try to use the information that we that we see from these attacks to provide practices, training to law enforcement. And of course, we always use that for our own safety and, and keeping our products and systems safe. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm thinking about the how handy Russia is at at malware and particularly ransomware. And, you know, if you look at Black Basta and Conti and the rest of the ransomware crowd, you know, they've been very successful just in the last couple of months here, banging away at companies all over the world. And then you look at the success they've had within the, within Ukraine and and here we are in the middle of a war, and it doesn't look like they're doing that well. You know, I mean, there's no, there's not a lot of evidence of success, at least as it's reported in the media. And that's the only, unfortunately, that's the only visibility I have into this. Um, does that go to like, you know, where we are from a threat intelligence and endpoint protection point of view? Do you think that's what's helping Ukraine withstand, a, you know, a higher percentage of these destructive Russian cyber attacks, or you know, given what we know about these guys, the Russians, uh, how long do you think it'll be before they'll figure out how to work around all that? Huh. Well, how long? <laughs> I couldn't tell you because they are indeed pretty good, and they're always evolving. And the threats—it seems like we can never keep up with with how they multiplied and they improve. I guess they're they're attacked, but it, it is definitely, and we we definitely seen it in this particular case that the ability, the the migration that Ukraine did to the cloud right when the war started, and and all the preparation that they did ahead of time has been key in them being able to be successful and and 
kind of withstand some of the attacks that they are uh, being subjected to. That hopefully will be a lesson for other countries. We're obviously seeing after the war started, we've seen attacks and and, uh, Russian espionage going to countries outside of Ukraine. So hopefully all of that will just be learned lessons for everyone else. But preparation has been key in this war in favor of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does your battlefield intelligence give you insight into other countries that Russia's engaged with, like Poland, for example, or do you, are you pretty much focused on Ukraine? We're concentrating in Ukraine, but we have seen, and it's in, actually in our report, we have seen these spy operations expanding to pretty much all of uh, Western Europe, Australia, the United States, Canada, even within Latin America to Mexico, Brazil. So we are keeping track of that. Mm. There hasn't been really much going into into Africa yet, but yes, it is expanding everywhere <laughs> except for for Russia and adjacent countries. Yeah. So if you look inside Putin's mind, you know he's kind of <laughs> publicly well. I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> I I invite you into Putin's mind. He's uh, he's very publicly committed, you know, to whatever it is that he's doing with Ukraine, and uh, he can't hardly back away. So if if push came to shove, there, what is your expectation about you know pushing the cyber the the cybersecurity button har- harder, if you will, or or using more cybersecurity offensive attacks than he's shown so far. I think the answer to that goes beyond my pay grade. <laughs> I think that obviously uh, a lot of the national strategy of, of the U.S. has to, you know, we have to decide what to do if it was a case of attacking the U.S. And the same for, for Ukraine. I think Microsoft has been there to support and has been public about the support that we're giving to Ukraine and trying to provide as much expertise and, and human power to combat what we're seeing, I wouldn't be able to tell you what's next. Uh-huh. Hey, okay, that's fair. The, we were talking about the five different elements. I think the third is, uh, uh, you know, it looks like there's a coalition of countries that's come together to defend Ukraine. And, you know, Russian intelligence agencies have certainly stepped up their network penetration and espionage activities and targeting allied governments outside Ukraine, do you think it'll be enough to help Ukraine hold off the offensive efforts of the Russians? Or what's your assessment of the battlefield? I hope so. (laughs) You hope so, huh? I hope so. Me too. Uh, It is so hard to predict, you know, how evil minds may work. But I hope so. I, I definitely think that there is the interest and genu- genuine interest in supporting not only democracy, free expression, uh, collaboration. And I think a lot of countries see that they, they may be the next target. And so 
So in terms of action and willingness to come to the table and try to help and try to work as a, as a group, I think all of that is there. Now, what, what the results, uh, you know, at the end of the day, in terms of keeping a score of the attacks, I, I don't know. But I definitely think that's the idea and, and there is the willingness and the, and the necessity or rush to, to get things done. Yeah. Who do you think has more to lose there from a reputation point of view? Do you think it's Microsoft or do you think it's the United States? <laughs> I never thought about that. I don't know. I don't I, I don't think I can answer that. Okay, that's fair. So uh, the Russian agencies are also conducting um you know, as we've mentioned earlier, global cyber influence operations to support these war efforts. I mean, both internally and and externally as well. I mean, God knows. What, I mean, you know, you look at the media coverage here of any given event, and it is so hard to discern how much of that is nonsense from Russia or how much of it is real, a real Absolutely. factual reporting. You know. Do you think that this is important enough to, I mean, you can only spread yourself so thin, right? I mean, I think, right? You've, you've got all this mis and mal and disinformation that you need to spread. Some of that is to go back to Russia to keep the troops sort of in line. And some of it has to go to other nation states in the region, you know, to relax their anti-Russian sentiments. And maybe some of it has to go to Ukraine to say, hey, you know, you used to belong to us and all we're trying to do is recapture an asset. Life ain't so bad here in Russia. Give it a chance. You know, I mean, how important do you think all that is to the war effort? I think it's very important in terms of combating disinformation. I think it's critical. And, and it has been saved by Brad Smith. It's been saved by Microsoft and, and everything we have been doing lately as far as hiring more experts, as far as providing resources to this disinformation issue tells me that it, that it is critical and that it's going to be even more critical going forward. We saw, and it was in the latest report that we posted um, called Lessons Learned from the War in Ukraine, that Russian propaganda consumption increased significantly after they were, well, around January of this year, even before the war started in New Zealand, in Canada, in the United States. And, and that's a big issue. It's a, it's a big deal when, you know, there is more at stake than just an invasion, which is, which is bad in itself. But when democracies and when freedom of speech and when uh, you're alienating people, I think, that, I think that's a a huge, huge deal and something that has to be that has to be fought <laughs> however we can. Yeah. Uh, but just like with everything, you know, in terms of responsibility, just like with everything, one company or one country cannot do everything on their own. The same way that we cannot fight ransomware in our own and we have partnerships and we have collaborations the same has to be said for something like this information. There's got to be a, a communal effort 
to combat this this huge organizations that are out there to to improve that you know to improve their attacks to make it more complex in ransomware for example we're seeing that it's going from conventional ransomware to human operated ransomware ransomware as a service is cheap they get a lot of money out of it so for all of this it has to be an effort of of different countries different organizations different experts yeah sure microsoft works with a lot of different companies on this particular front however is there one or two partner companies that you guys work more closely with than normal in terms of other software or tools or technologies for intel or or detection or the rest of it of this information you mean yeah both information and you know an attack vector uh, for example i mean you're trying to you you're trying to protect critical infrastructure on the ukraine side i assume so you know, you've got a bunch of OT uh, exposed, I assume. Do you work with industrial automation companies as a partner in that regard, or, or are you even involved in that at all? Yes, we do have partnerships with different companies, different agencies. Recently, last month, we acquired Miburo, that is a disinformation specialist company, and, and the whole team is coming over to Microsoft. Yeah. And um, for attacks, we have different programs that we work on. For example, my team has something called uh, CTIP, which is Cyber Threat Intelligence Program, where we uh, we normally sign this with the ministries of technology or certs of different countries, and we provide access to threat intelligence and vulnerabilities that we see in our systems. We provide best practices and, and information about patches. So yes, we definitely work in association with a lot of different companies and law enforcement to try to, to help with this. I mean, in our team, for example, if we were to discover some kind of uh, network of, of malware, Normally, we have to work with governmental agencies or law enforcement in different countries to help with the takedowns, to help with solve issues of jurisdiction and, you know, and enforcement powers that we don't have. Mm -hmm. Sure. And speaking briefly of ransomware, you know, we now say, and I guess the real question here is back to the partnership question, you know, do you partner with CISA or any government agency who, you know, we've been ever since the Biden, you know, executive orders of what, a year ago now, I guess, or something, May of, was that just May of this year? I don't know. But it seemed as though one of the big trusts was, you know, working, you know, sharing data and working in partnership with the private sector. I haven't seen a lot of that happen. Do you see much of that happening from here we are in a global, almost conventional war, right? And we're underneath that. There's, you know, there's cyber warfare going on, but on the surface, it, it is a kinetic conventional war. People are shooting, you know, kinetic weaponry at each other. So what do you see from a partnership point of view with the federal government? We have a lot of partnerships and, and that's not necessarily my team because in, in North America, we have a separate team that deals with, with government affairs and partnerships with the public sector. But for example, 
the Institute for Security and Technology has a ransomware task force. I'm a member of that task force where we provide, um, and we actually issue last year, it's been a year since we issue our, our report, the report with recommendations based on that executive order and recommendations for the, for the private sector. Two months ago, I think, uh, Jen Easterly, the director of CISA, announced that they, they are going to kind of merge with that ransomware task force and we're going to work in collaboration for that. There's a lot of partnerships and a lot of information that is exchanged within the terms of what we can legally exchange or, or provide, because obviously we also have legal obligations and um, privacy laws and privacy promises to keep with our customers. Yeah, well, and they say all's fair in love and war, except when you have privacy regulations in the way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there is not necessarily as easy, but when there is information in general, threats or information that is not personal information or information that could be exchanged to fight cybercrime, we certainly have those those partnerships. Sure. Recently seen the federal government being very adamant about not paying ransom for ransomware. You know, it's that's easy for them to say, but when it can you know, the companies are going out of business six months later or three months later or whatever, or immediately maybe, you know, they can't come up with $13 million or whatever the ransomware demand is. And, you know, or they can't stay in business rather after after not paying as per the FBI's instructions, then they'll, they'll be out of business. So, you know, it's, uh, there seems to be you know, do as I say, but we 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 have no we have no collateral liability in this. Somehow, we're not going to help you stay in business. It seems odd to me. The debate about whether to pay or not ransomware is a complicated one because, in an ideal world, you wouldn't pay ransomware because you're prepared uh, with some sort of incident response plan, and you have backups, and you can restore your systems, and and you mitigate the loss of information and, and loss of business opportunity and time. But in reality, it's not doesn't always work like that. And there are situations where, yes, you have to. The, the only option is to pay, and not only that, but kind of sit and cross your fingers that that the ransomware attacker is going to be <laughs> ethical enough to give you back your information or give you back the keys to the encrypt your information. So it is a difficult answer that can be said, well, pay or not pay. You know, there are different factors why a company ultimately has to make that decision and, and then sometimes has to, unfortunately, with the consequences of that decision. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'm conscious of the fact that we're uh, we're about we're right out of time at this point, Victoria. But uh, let's close this out with one question about sort of lessons learned, if you will. From I know you guys have published, uh, you know, sort of whatever you want to call them, learnings or takeaways or what have you. What do you consider the top the top lessons that we've learned so far uh, that we can apply? This is very easily transportable to our current situation 
here where, you know, we've got lots of exposed critical infrastructure. And, you know, if it's not the Russians or the Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, wherever the adversary is, they'll be, you know, using, leveraging the, you know, cyber attacks on that CI in order to try to influence outcomes. What do you have in the way of sort of findings from what we've done over there so far? I think the lesson in everything, at least I always say to whenever someone asks me or whenever customers ask or anyone, is that preparation is key. It is, it is, I think I have heard this somewhere that it is not if I'm going to get attacked by when, which I normally don't really like that, but it is kind of assumed that we're being attacked, that the attacks, that there is no end inside and that the attacks are going to be more sophisticated and more complex every day. So it is a matter of how you respond to these things and um, being prepared, knowing Number one, that that is an issue. That is something that has to be taken seriously. That has to there has to be an investment, a plan, and uh, sometimes and some national strategy in the case of countries, so that you can follow that response plan, mitigation plan when something happens. It's the biggest lesson learned because at the end of the day. When there was preparation, when there was migration to the cloud in, in uh, Ukraine's case, then we saw that the effects were not as, I guess, big as they could have been. So I think in a nutshell, that would be my advice or the yeah. lessons that we have learned. And, and obviously the lesson that, that we cannot go at it on our own. It cannot be an issue of just Ukraine, just Microsoft. Uh, it's something that, that has to be an effort from different stakeholders in different industries and in different sectors to be, able, to be able to respond to this. Yeah, sure. And then, you know, it's, uh, you already have a business to run as it is. And now, and now you've got a war to fight on top of it. So. Yeah, I imagine you would need partnership with other folks. And it's good that you recognize that, of course. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, so that, that the preparedness lesson, I guess the question, the follow on question would be are we prepared? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> good answer. Uh, no, there is a lot, much more to, to be done. A lot more awareness that has to happen and, and planning and agreement from different sides. So, no, I think I think we have ways to go. But we're on a good path, but there's always room for improvement. Well said. All right, Victoria Beckman, it's been an absolute pleasure. Again, the Victoria is the lead for the Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit for the Americas. Uh, I'm sure glad you could join us today. It's been illuminating and uh, and a lot of fun talking with you. And and it's all of this is sensitive material. I understand that. So thanks for stretching a little bit and giving us a little little bit more than um, you know, Danny. You you went slightly beyond the published version, and I I really do appreciate that. So hopefully, you know, if if you're up for it, I'd love to have you back in say four, five, six months and see where we stand over there, because I'm sure we'll be there. And we'll probably have, you know, a lot more to talk about. 
Sure, sure. I'll be happy to come back. Thanks for the invitation. It's been a pleasure as well. Great. Okay. Thank you. And thank you. And thanks to our listeners for spending uh, another 30 minutes with us on the podcast and hope you enjoyed it and learned something and have a takeaway here today. And until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.